1: On the evening of August 10, 2017, in Copenhagen, Denmark, freelance journalist Kim Wall decided to squeeze in one more story before moving to China with her partner. She was given a last-minute opportunity to interview an eccentric Danish inventorpreneur who had built three submarines and had worked on two crowdfunded manned space projects. Following a quick goodbye to her boyfriend, Kim set out to meet the inventor, not realizing this story would end up being her last. Join me now as we look into the courageous life of investigative journalist Kim Wall. You'll hear about a fearless, award-winning journalist who changed countless lives through her writing by focusing on the undercurrents of rebellion. You'll also learn about an eccentric inventor whose quest for power and desire to break boundaries led him to a dark place nearly impossible to fathom. Kim Wall was born in 1987 and grew up in a close-knit community in the small town of Trelleborg in southern Sweden, just 40 miles from Copenhagen. Trelleborg is located just across the strait dividing Denmark from Sweden. Kim's wanderlust and infectious curiosity was sparked early on, a childhood that was spent with her globe-trotting journalist parents, Ingrid and Joachim Wall. As a child, Kim spent countless hours in newspaper offices or on work trips with her parents in countries including Hungary, Germany, and Mexico. In fact, Kim's traveling started even before she was born. While her mother Ingrid was pregnant with her, she covered stories in the United States and the Caribbean and Kim apparently gave her first kick in her mother's womb at John F. Kennedy Airport on the way home from a reporting job. Becoming parents didn't alter or slow down the Walls' lifestyle in any way. Kim's mom explained, To stop traveling just because we'd become parents was not an option in our world. Even when Kim's younger brother Tom was born, the Walls managed to remain active travelers. Mind you, the Walls family's adventurous lifestyle did not create distance between the family members or lessen the child-parent bond. Quite the opposite, Kim was especially affectionate, earning her the nickname Snuggles when she was younger. When Kim was older, her loving nature only grew, and she became widely known for giving the best hugs. Kim was as equally determined as she was compassionate. Her mother Ingrid recalls the word no, not being a part of Kim's vocabulary. As a child, her and her friends made posters demanding that a neighborhood tree not be cut down. And it wasn't. Given all the travel, different cultures, and political environments Kim experienced growing up, She first set her sights on becoming a diplomat working in New Delhi for the European Union. To work towards this goal, Kim studied international relations at the London School of Economics, where she earned a bachelor's degree in international relations. Kim eventually came to realize her true calling was freelance journalism, and it was time for her to embrace her inherent talent and follow in her parents' footsteps. Kim earned a master's degree in journalism and international affairs from the esteemed Columbia Journalism School in New York. When Kim accepted first prize in the Foreign Press Association's Young Journalist Award in 2013, she joked, my parents are still struggling to understand my choice of career. That's because both of them are journalists. By 2017, Kim was 30 years old and an award-winning freelance journalist who traveled the world covering stories. Her career had taken her to far-flung locales. She reported in countries such as China, Haiti, Uganda, and North Korea. Kim's writing appeared in numerous publications, including Harper's, The Guardian, The New York Times. Vice Magazine, Slate, The Atlantic, and Time, to name but a few. Going to the safest places wasn't a priority for Kim, which, of course, kept her parents worried, but always proud. Kim wrote about complex and engaging issues. The journalist described her work as stories that covered identity, gender, pop culture, social justice, foreign policy, and the undercurrents of rebellion. These undercurrents of rebellion were especially evident in her work on feminism in China, the oppressed Pardee tribe in India, nuclear waste in the Marshall Islands, and the underground internet culture in Cuba. In March of 2017, Kim pitched a story about the Danish space race to a variety of magazines and news outlets. She was in part drawn to the story because she was living in Copenhagen and had learned quite a bit of it through some of her contacts she had made. Adding to this, when Kim moved in with her partner, Ola Stoba, a Danish designer, she found herself living in the Refselun district, an industrial area of Copenhagen that then housed several mixed-use buildings. One day, Kim and Ola strolled by a building bearing a sign that read Rocket Madsen Space Lab while they were out exploring their new neighborhood. Kim decided it was time she reached out to her neighbor, an inventor named Peter Madsen, known as Rocket Madsen by his friends and followers. Kim contacted Madsen numerous times, but the two were unable to organize a meeting. This disappointed Kim. As there was plenty of interest in her proposed story, and she figured it would be a pretty straightforward and relatively simple piece to put together if she could only nail down an in-person interview with Madsen. Peter Madsen, a 46-year-old Danish self-taught engineer, amateur aerospace engineer, and submarine builder, was known to be a bit of an eccentric. But he had an intriguing history of bizarre stunts and projects that captured both Kim's and the public's attention. Almost a decade earlier, on May 3rd, 2008, Madsen showcased his self-built 58-foot, 40-ton submarine in Copenhagen Harbor to a cheering crowd of onlookers. Madsen's creation was thought to be the world's largest DIY submarine. He named the vessel the UC-3 Nautilus as a homage to the fictional submarine in Jules Verne's classic 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Just a week after the launch of his submarine, Madsen began another venture, building a rocket. Madsen was clearly intent on breaking boundaries, whether the heights of space or the depths of the ocean. Madsen and the former NASA contractor, Christian von Benstone co-founded Copenhagen Suborbitals and located the crowd-funded company in Revsalun. They intended to construct the first manned, built-from-scratch rocket, and in June 2011, Madsen successfully launched a rocket from a floating platform off an island in the Baltic Sea. Madsen gave an interview in 2014 about his work with Copenhagen suborbitals. If the audience got past the many disturbing shots captured by the camera person of a naked mannequin suspended from the ceiling by chains that wrapped around its groin and chest, they heard Madsen describe how he and his partner divvied up work. Madsen also discussed with the interviewer the ultimate goal of his and his partner's project. During the interview, Peter's rebellious anti-establishment streak peeked through the surface. Even by 2014, it was apparent Madsen liked to break from the status quo and to prove people wrong. Peter's ambitious projects made him a celebrity in Denmark resulting in films and books about his feats that he then leveraged into speaking engagements. In 2014, however, Peter and Christian parted ways after a heated altercation. Peter confronted his partner for spending too much time with family and accused him of not devoting enough time to the project. Madsen released a statement Once their partnership dissolved, that read, I'm fully aware that my temper is to blame for Christian's exit, and I am very sorry it has come to this. Not long after Peter's partner left Copenhagen Suborbitals, Madsen was ousted from the organization for being difficult and argumentative. A volunteer told the media when Madsen was angry, he would behave like a child who just lost his toy or dropped his ice cream or something, and occasionally throw hammers and other tools. Not exactly safe behavior in a building that housed dangerous materials such as rocket fuel. In June of 2014, Madsen started his own company, Rocket Madsen Space Lab, in a hangar just across from Copenhagen suborbitals. This was the building Kim and her partner walked by in March of 2017, the walk that inspired her to follow through on her story about the Danish space race. But Copenhagen Suborbitals and Rocket Madsen Space Lab were in a race to be the first non-government, crowd-funded, volunteer-based group to send a person into space. By August of 2017, Kim had already interviewed someone who, from Copenhagen suborbitals. She just needed Madsen's perspective to complete the story. That's why, when on the afternoon of August 10, 2017, Madsen texted her out of the blue and invited her to come by his shop for tea, Kim said yes. After paying him a short 30-minute visit, she agreed to accompany him on a submarine trip on the UC-3 Nautilus later that evening. The trip would give her a chance to check out one of Madsen's inventions firsthand and to conduct an interview. Agreeing to the submarine ride was not an easy decision for Kim, even though she had been in pursuit of an interview with Madsen for months. Kim was not afraid for her safety or being alone with Madsen on his submarine. She felt she'd been in much more unsettling situations throughout her career. Rather... Accepting Madsen's invitation meant Kim would have to miss her and Ola's going away party scheduled for that very evening. They were leaving the next day to move to Beijing and the barbecue dinner they had planned out was their chance to say a proper goodbye to friends. Kim was relieved when Ola understood why she had to miss the party. Before heading out, She packed up most of her important personal possessions in a couple of blue Ikea bags. She was ready for a trip to China, but also eager to get the story she'd been working on for so long, one step closer to being done. Kim asked Ola if he wanted to come along on the submarine trip. He was insanely close to saying yes, but he turned down the offer because of the large party the couple had planned to host. It would have seemed rude to cancel on such short notice. So Ola gave Kim a big kiss and she left. She said she would be back in just a few hours. They both hoped Kim might be back in time to catch the tail end of the party. At approximately 7 p.m., just before Kim boarded Madsen's submarine, she texted Ola a photo of the UC3 Nautilus. She then sent a photo of windmills in the water, and one of herself, at the steering wheel of the submarine, with Matson in the frame, but with his back turned to the camera. It seemed like Kim was having a good time, and all was well. A little while later, Ola was entertaining his guests at a waterside barbecue when a friend drew his attention to the water. Squinting through the setting sun, Ola. Saw Kim in the distance aboard the submarine, waving goodbye in his general direction. The spot she knew the party was being held. Before the submarine went down, Kim sent off one more text to Ola. She joked, I'm still alive, by the way, but I'm going down now. I love you. He brought coffee and cookies, though. The goodbye party continued long into the night eventually moving indoors to a nearby bar. When Kim failed to return any messages he had sent her, Ola started to worry. He repeatedly texted Kim, but didn't get any reply. He went down to the pier and searched, but Ola found no sign of Kim, Madsen, or the submarine. Ola made his way back home and tried to sleep. However, Panic started to consume him. Worried there had been some kind of terrible accident, he got up, hopped on his bike, and navigated the island in search of Kim. Finally, sometime around 2 a.m. on August 11th, Ola contacted the police and the Navy. Kim was classified as a missing person, and helicopters and boats began an extensive search in the waters off Copenhagen. They were searching for any sign of the missing vessel or its occupants. Later that same day, at 11 a.m., a man out in his boat, assisting with the search, spotted the UC-3 Nautilus near a lighthouse in Kueh Bay. The witness clearly saw Madsen in the submarine tower. He then saw Madsen go down the hatch and re-emerge a few minutes later as the submarine started to sink Madsen swam towards a nearby boat for help and was pulled out of the water after returning to the dock one of the reporters who had gathered there after learning about the missing submarine asked Madsen if everything was okay he gave the reporters a thumbs up and said he was fine but sad because his nautilus had sunk he explained there had been a defect on the ballast tank that had caused the loss of his beloved vessel. When questioned, Madsen informed the authorities he had dropped Kim off the night before on the northern tip of the island at around 10.30 p.m. He swore that was the last time he saw her. According to Madsen, when his submarine went down, Kim was already safely on land. The police didn't for one second believe Madsen's story. A local restaurant owner came forward and said he had the entire area covered thoroughly with CCTV. The video footage he handed over to the police showed no sign of Kim or the supposed drop off. Madsen was arrested and officially charged with involuntary manslaughter for having killed. In an unknown way, in an unknown place, Kim Isabel Frederica Wall of Sweden, sometime after Thursday, 5 p.m. If found guilty of this charge, Madsen faced somewhere between five years to life in prison. The next day, on April 12, 2017, Madsen appeared in court for a pretrial hearing and changed his story about what happened to Kim. Now, he said, Kim had died on the submarine in a terrible accident. Madsen said he had climbed through the heavy 155-pound hatch and held it open for the journalist to follow. But it slipped out of his grip when he lost his foothold, and he heard a sickening thud as it fell against Kim's head. Madsen stated it was a terrible accident. A disaster. No doctor could have done anything. Kim was severely injured. There was a pool of blood where she landed. I touched her neck, but there was no pulse. He went on to tell the judge, Sinking the Nautilus is not a suitable ending for Kim. So I removed the body and did a funeral at sea, like it's been done at sea for hundreds of years. He said, He did not want a dead body on his submarine, so he tied a rope to her legs and pulled her body through the hatch and dumped it in the water, roughly 30 miles south of Copenhagen. Madsen said he was suicidal by this point and intended on killing himself, but when his submarine sank, he changed his mind and sought rescue instead of going down with his ship. After listening to this new version of events, The judge ordered Madsen to be held in custody during the inquiry into Kim's death. Over the following days, the investigation into Kim's murder continued. The investigators located and raised the UC-3 Nautilus. After a preliminary investigation of the crime scene, they determined the submarine had been deliberately scuttled, likely by Madsen. To hide any evidence of what had really happened to Kim, the search for Kim's body ramped up with divers, sonar equipment, and helicopters used to hunt for the missing woman. During the afternoon of August 21st, 11 days after Kim was last seen alive, a cyclist was riding along Amar Island in Copenhagen when they spotted a headless, limbless torso washed ashore close to where Madsen's submarine had sank. A rush was put on DNA testing, and by the next day it was confirmed part of Kim had been found. On August 23rd, Kim's mom publicly confirmed the torso found did in fact belong to her daughter. In a statement released on Facebook on behalf of the family, Ingrid wrote, It is with boundless sadness and shock that we receive news that the remains of our daughter and sister Kim Wall have been found. We cannot yet grasp the extent of this catastrophe, and there are many questions that must be answered. From all corners of the world, evidence of Kim's ability to be a person that makes a difference she has found and told stories from different parts of the globe, stories that must be written. Kim traveled for several months in the South Pacific to let the world know what is happening to the population on the islands that sink. She allowed us to travel to the Haiti earthquake, to the torture chamber of Idi Min in Uganda, and the minefield in Sri Lanka. She gave a voice to the weak. Vulnerable and marginalized people. That voice had been needed for a long, long time. Now has been silenced. During the horrific days since Kim disappeared, we've had countless evidence of how loved and appreciated she was as a human and friend, as well as a professional journalist. A couple of weeks later, a court approved the prosecutor's request to change the charge against Madsen to manslaughter from the originally filed involuntary manslaughter charge. The evidence against Madsen grew even further in early October when investigators revealed the computer located on Madsen's submarine contained videos of women being tortured, strangled, and killed. The prosecutor admitted the videos did not appear to be produced by Madsen but the authorities felt they were indeed video recordings of the true killing of women. Some of the footage even showed women being burned alive and decapitated. On top of this, the results of the autopsy on the torso came back, revealing Kim had been stabbed 15 times in and around her groin. Then, on October 6th, Divers located Kim's head, clothing, and a knife in plastic bags close to where her torso had been found. Dental records were used to confirm the head was Kim's. Searchers also found both of her legs. They were tied to pieces of metal to weigh them down and to keep them from floating to the surface. A saw was also recovered that the police believed had to have been used to dismember Kim's body before it was disposed of at sea. Kim's arms were later found at separate locations in the water surrounding Copenhagen. Her loved ones could finally have some small comfort knowing their daughter had been fully returned home. The investigators could not determine a specific cause of death from Kim's remains. However, it was apparent her limbs and head had been deliberately removed. They also discovered that Kim's skull showed no sign of fracture or blunt force trauma, calling into question Madsen's story that the journalist had been accidentally hit in the head with a heavy hatch and killed. The investigators believed Madsen had sexually assaulted Kim and then murdered her before severing her body and tossing it into the sea. It didn't surprise anyone when Madsen once again changed his story to better suit the evidence. On October 30th, Madsen admitted Kim was never hit in the head by the hatch. Instead, he claimed while he was up on the deck of the submarine, Kim had died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Madsen explained the air pressure on board the submarine had suddenly plummeted while I was on deck and Kim was in the engine room. The sub had filled with exhaust fumes and he had been unable to get back in. When I finally managed to open the hatch, a warm cloud hits my face. I find her lifeless on the floor and I squat next to her and try to wake her up, slapping her cheeks. Unable to revive her, Madsen reportedly tried for nearly an hour to get Kim's lifeless body out of the submarine's hatch. He denied ever sexually assaulting her, but said he eventually gave up trying to get Kim's body out of the submarine intact and dismembered her body. An act, he said, he repeatedly denied committing out of respect for the victim's family. On January 16, 2018, Madsen was formally charged with murder, dismemberment, and indecent handling of a corpse. He was also charged with having sexual relations with Wall in a particularly dangerous nature. The world was stunned and horrified by the nature of Kim's death, and many people wondered, What kind of monster could have committed such a heinous crime? Looking for answers, they started digging into Madsen's childhood and past behavior. Madsen grew up in the little lakeside town of Saber, located 60 miles west of Copenhagen. Madsen's mother Annie was 36 years younger than his father and had three sons from two previous marriages. His father Carl worked as an innkeeper, and Madsen often described his father as authoritarian and violent. When he was only six years old, Madsen's mother left his father and took her other children with her, leaving Madsen behind to live with his abusive father. Once Madsen told a reporter who was writing a biography on the inventor, when I think about my father, I think how many children in Germany must have felt If their dad was a commandant in a concentration camp, how does it feel to know your own father is a villain? Madsen eventually became an esteemed but eccentric inventor, known to focus mainly on large crowdfunded projects centered on submarines and rockets. However, he was also considered fanatical and foul-tempered, and in his career suffered from his professional fallouts mood swings, and the willingness to go it alone. His friends described Madsen as uncompromising and highlighted how he hated being contradicted. One colleague explained, Conflict has followed Madsen his whole life. He has a hard time getting along with people. He has lofty ambitions and wants to do everything his way. Even Madsen's own half-brother told the Swedish daily newspaper Peter is very strange, and that turns him into his own greatest enemy. Described as a unique and unsocial person, the inventor sometimes lived on a submarine and owned few possessions. Madsen was reportedly married and had an open marriage, but little was known about his wife. A few of his ex-girlfriends reported Madsen was into sadomasochism and erotic asphyxiation. For Madsen, sex was inherently linked to dominance and control, and his submarine played a role in luring women, with Madsen sometimes leveraging the pickup line. Hey lady, do you want to come back and see my submarine? Even more disturbing information came out about Madsen during his much-anticipated trial, which opened on March 8, 2018 in Copenhagen. The Murder of Kim Wall was one of the most popular cases in the history of Denmark. It captured the public's imagination, not only because of the graphic brutality of the crime itself, but also because people were unsettled by the thought of a calculating and violent killer, hiding unseen for years inside a man considered by most to be a harmless eccentric. The interest in Madsen's trial was so great, the Copenhagen District Court opened up a special room with a video link on some days to accommodate as many as 115 journalists from 15 countries. Six different newspapers sent reporters to live blog every minute of the trial. One reporter covering the case noted, Everyone follows it. It doesn't matter if you're in a cafe or a family birthday. Everyone knows this case. The case against peter madsen was heard by copenhagen city court judge annette burko and two jurors at madsen's request the verdict was reached by a judge and two-person jury instead of the typical six-person jury of a city court during the 11-day trial that extended over seven weeks madsen described himself to the court as a psychopath but a loving one when he was on the stand He stuck with his most recent story, suggesting Kim had accidentally died of carbon monoxide poisoning, and he had dismembered her body in order to get her out of the submarine and to give her a proper burial at sea. When asked point-blank about the dismemberment, Madsen replied, What do you do when you have a large problem? You make it smaller. I am really, really sorry about what happened. Peter finally had to admit to stabbing Kim after experts testified about the multiple stab wounds found on Kim's body. But Madsen said he used a sharpened screwdriver only to make sure the parts would sink long after the woman had accidentally died and while he was dismembering her body and burying her at sea. Madsen told the jury... I put some punctures in the body parts because I didn't want them to be inflated by gases. There is nothing sexual in the fact that the stab holes were in her vagina. I understand why you might think there was, but there was nothing sexual in it for me. The forensic pathologist, however, took the stand and testified Kim's remains showed no signs of carbon monoxide poisoning. The pathologist stated her lungs displayed no sign of heat damage or traces of exhaust gases, as would be expected if she had died from inhaling exhaust fumes. This called into question Madsen's explanation of Kim's death. Even more, many of Kim's wounds were caused while she was still alive, or mere minutes after her death, not hours later, as Madsen had testified. When he had been brought in for questioning, after Kim had vanished, the investigators noticed scrapes on Madsen's face and neck and scratches on his arm. These very well could have been the marks made by a woman fighting for her life. The prosecutor was quite certain Kim's death had been premeditated. He believed after Kim agreed to go on the submarine trip, Madsen stashed a saw, sharpened screwdrivers, straps, pipes, and a video camera in the hold of the Nautilus in preparation for the young journalist's torture, murder, and dismemberment. More than 30 witnesses testified during the course of Madsen's trial. Madsen's seemingly elusive wife, who left him during the trial, was called to testify, but she was excused due to medical reasons. The witness list did include many other women, Madsen had tried to get to join him on his submarine in the days leading up to Kim's death, as well as former sexual partners, friends, colleagues from his rocket project, and even members of the Black Society, a BDSM group in Copenhagen that kicked Madsen out for being too passive. One of the most damning witnesses was a former sexual partner of Madsen, who claimed he had texted her a series of messages that detailed a violent fantasy of cutting up a woman on board his homemade submarine. The messages eerily mirrored the situation Kim had found herself in, down to the types of tools Matson wanted to use and the dismemberment. In the moment, the woman didn't take Matson's messages seriously. Only later, after Kim was killed, did the gravity of Madsen's six-story sink in? The pornography and snuff videos discovered on Madsen's computer during the investigation were also presented to the jury as evidence. Madsen had psychopathic tendencies. The collection included more than 100 videos, cartoons, and written texts depicting the murder, torture, and impaling of women, and in some cases, Real killings. Madsen's defense attorney, Bettina Hald Engmark, argued the prosecution's case was based solely on circumstantial evidence. None of it proved her client had committed murder. She told the court Madsen should receive no more than six months in prison for the indecent handling of a corpse for which he admitted guilt. In contrast, the prosecutor asked the judge and jury, to sentence Madsen to life in prison or to place him in forbearing, a type of preventative custody with no time limit for prisoners, believed to pose a significant danger to others. Both suggested penalties are the harshest penalties available under Danish law. Psychiatrists went before the court and recommended Madsen be held in safe custody as his narcissistic and psychopathic traits make him a continuing danger to others. The doctors found Madsen showed a severe lack of empathy and remorse and was extremely untrustworthy and a pathological liar. When asked if he wanted to make a final statement before the deliberation, all Madsen could muster saying, if anything, I am sorry about what happened. On April 25th, 2018, Madsen learned his fate. The judge told a packed courtroom, It is the court's assessment that the defendant killed Kim Wall. We are talking about a cynical and planned sexual assault and brutal murder of a random woman, who in connection with her journalistic work, had accepted an offer to go sailing in the defendant's submarine. The judge felt Madsen had failed to give trustworthy explanations and had shown an interest for the killing and maiming of people and has shown an interest for impaling. Madsen was found guilty on all three charges he faced. Premeditated murder, the indecent handling of a corpse, and sexual relations other than intercourse of a particularly dangerous nature. A charge that stemmed from the stab wounds found inside and surrounding Kim's genital area. In addition to serving a life sentence, Madsen was instructed to pay Kim's boyfriend approximately $19,650. And Madsen's beloved submarine that he spent years designing and building would become property of the state and be destroyed. Madsen appeared to be crushed when the verdict was read. The once promising inventor sat motionless for close to a minute with his eyes closed and his head bowed. We spoke with Christine and Camilla, the hosts of the popular Danish true crime podcast, Morglen, to learn their insights on how this brutal crime impacted them and the people in their country.
2: It did have a huge impact on this country. The general public was held captive by the dramatic events as they unfolded, which was also something that was unique to this case. And at times, it felt like we all followed the investigation live. Because first, we were told that this inventor who we all knew already, he was already a famous person in Denmark. He was famous for having built his own submarine. We were told that he was missing and everybody was worried that something happened to him. And then we were told that he had a passenger on board. And I mean, I think people assumed that... Oh my God, the submarine went down and there was a search party out and it was all over the news. So then it took this dramatic turn that no one had expected. So just the fact that we got to follow the case from that initial event of where they were missing up until the trial. I have never experienced a case like this. The story unfolded
3: like this nightmare we couldn't wake up from. The coverage was massive, and it felt like everyone, they held their breaths. It was just impossible to avoid. It was impossible to look away and and ignore. When the body parts started uh, showing up, I had this feeling that the public felt this big collective shame that built with the facts of the case coming out. A Danish man had done this to an amazing, smart, capable Swedish woman who should have been able to just do her job in Copenhagen of all places. This massive coverage, and it only intensified when the trial started. People waited outside the courtroom overnight to get one of the very few seats inside. Major news outlets reported live from inside so everyone could follow the event as they unfolded and get all the dramatic details. That was when the story was slowly uncovered, and the true details of what happened came out. I mean, it was horrific to find out what Kim had gone through. It was a brutal murder, and it was in a league of its own here in Denmark. And that's definitely why so many people around the world also were gripped by it. This murder was planned, and it went far beyond anything anyone could have thought of for a crime novel as fiction. It was monstrous.
2: When we do our podcast, we try not to talk about murderers being monsters because it takes away from the fact that they are actually real people like you and I. And if we want to understand why they do what they do, then we can't think of them as monsters. They're real people. Mm-hmm. But um this crime is is something that it's just so hard to comprehend. Yeah it really is yeah and it's it's
3: very very rare that we experience these types of murders in Denmark you know where it's planned and sadistic like this we have about 50 murders a year and the majority of those are murders where a victim and perpetrator
2: know each other
3: so I feel like that was part of why this also captured everyone yeah,
2: it's I mean it's so rare that anything like that happens here. And then to find out that it was planned and that this was something that he actually enjoyed and what she had to go through, it's horrific. It's just horrific. And I mean, I hope we never have another case like that, Mm -hmm. obviously. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Also, there's always
3: an ongoing debate about punishment, but we don't have the death penalty here. Christine and I are both against the death penalty, so I'm not advocating for that. Uh, we have life in prison, but that is usually with parole at some point. On average, after 15 to 17 years, it's rare that people are in prison for more than 30 years. We're talking about a handful of people that have been in prison for more than 30 years here. So, so obviously, we're also thinking about what when he gets out of prison. That's going to be in our lifetime.
2: It brings up the discussion of maybe we don't punish people hard enough here mm-hmm. because a 15 to 17 years just seems like not enough for such an awful crime. So that's something that is always debated when something like terrible like this happens mm-hmm. in Denmark.
1: Reflecting on when Madsen was convicted of murdering her daughter, Kim's mom Ingrid said, I feel no hate for the man. I just feel nothing. I have no energy to waste on Madsen. It causes him no pain if I hate him. In fact, it certainly makes no difference to him at all. But Ingrid did question the impetus behind Madsen's apology at the end of the trial. When he was asked if he had any final words, Madsen said, I'm extremely sorry. Ingrid asked people to consider... What is he sorry for? Himself? Because his submarine was being confiscated? Because his wife left him? Because his workshop has been emptied out and hired to someone else? We don't get to find out, and we don't get to hear one word about forgiveness. After the verdict was handed down, Madsen's lawyer announced her client would challenge his life sentence, but not the guilty verdict itself. Madsen appealed to Denmark's High Court asking for a time-limited sentence, not an open-ended prison term. Madsen's lawyer argued her client was found guilty based on undocumented claims and that a life sentence was a disproportionate punishment. Instead, she was asking for a sentence of a fixed 14 to 16 years. The appeals court judges, however, upheld the earlier decision, arguing Madsen had demonstrated unusual brutality and that there were aggravating circumstances due to the fact the crime was meticulously planned. After learning he would still be spending an indefinite amount of time in prison, Madsen told the judges, I'm terribly sorry to Kim's relatives for what happened. The night before he killed Kim, Madsen performed internet searches for Beheading Girl and Agony, a horrifying search trifecta that eventually led him to a video of a woman getting her throat slit. Maybe, with his rocket project dashed and the loss of control in his professional life, Peter's need for dominance in his personal life was amplified. This resulted in dire consequences for Kim the very second she stepped onto Madsen's submarine and started to ask him questions about his failing project. On October eleventh, two 2017, a memorial was held for Kim Wall at the Columbia Journalism School. The crowd, who was packed into the auditorium, watched a photo montage set to music that highlighted different stages of Kim's life and career as well as her adventurous spirit. Loved ones, friends, colleagues, and past professors remembered Kim and how she contributed to the field of journalism and made a lasting impact on their lives. Kim's mom spoke at the service, grieving the loss of her daughter and the loss of all the stories Kim would never have the chance to tell. She also included a call to action asking other women to carry on Kim's work and to dare to tell. To ensure Kim's legacy lives on, her family and friends started the Kim Wall Memorial Fund. The fund offers a yearly $5,000 grant to women journalists who work on stories that cover what Kim called the undercurrents of rebellion. Kim's mom said the fund, will be a way for everyone to focus on the future instead of it all ending that night on the submarine. To support the fund in perpetuity, the Wall family opened a GoFundMe page, which to date has raised almost $400,000 and is still growing. By honoring Kim's life with the Kim Wall Memorial Fund, she will not be thought as a victim. Instead, Kim will be remembered for her contributions to journalism and for inspiring other women to be courageous, to get out in the world, and to dare to tell stories that matter.
2: I think something that's unique for this case also is that her parents, they've talked about their grief on TV and they published a book about their daughter. And usually you don't really hear from The loved ones because they like to grieve and not receive a lot of attention but kim wall's parents they've been on a mission since she died they want people to know what a spectacular young woman she was and that's why they published the book about her because they want to make sure that this crime isn't her story ultimately they want people to remember her for who she was and what she did and not think of him and what she was put through, even though that was so horrific. I just think that's very beautiful because they made this foundation to try to keep her legacy alive and make sure that other young freelance women can travel around and do their journalism and make great stories like she did. That's something that's special for this case also, that. Her parents have really put in an effort to make sure that she's remembered for who she was. Everybody feels like they know that this girl was special. I have to say, though, that I've read the book and
3: it's, it's an amazing book. It yeah. really is. Yeah. And you really, after that, you forget that he exists and you only remember her. You get chills. It's well written and you really get the sense of who she was. And I feel like that's what should be left for us to think about. That should be our guiding star in this. Let's think about her. Let's forget he exists.
1: Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files. For in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders, we'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank Camilla and Christine from the hit Danish true crime podcast, Moglin. Since we started working on this episode, we've gotten to know them. And I have to tell you, they are two of the kindest, most caring people we've met in podcasting. If you'd like to learn more about them, we've provided a link to their website in the show notes. And if you'd like to learn more about Kim Wall's memorial fund, as well as Ingrid Wall's book, A Silenced Voice, The Life of Journalist Kim Wall, we've also provided links for them in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce to you the new podcast from host Lindsey Graham, American Elections, Wicked Game.
0: On Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. The citizens of the United States will cast ballots to elect their president. We're in a battle for the soul of this nation. We're in the middle of a cultural civil war. We're having a fight between two visions of America. The battle
2: for the soul of America.
0: And it feels like the country couldn't be more divided. Mob politics is the new normal. America will have to endure another 58 weeks of shouting. People say horrendous things and they mean them.
1: Outrage. It's rigged. They've ruined our country. Why would we vote for them?
0: Misinformation. I will define what truth is. True. is not true and manipulation.
1: They want to take How away no your hamburgers. hamburgers. To destroy this is what, what it means to be American. About
0: 58 weeks of the worst sort of political contest, one no American could be proud of. The rancor, the insult, the disrespect to our nation.
1: How has it come to this? There is scarcely a possibility that we shall escape civil war, murder, Robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will all be openly taught and practiced. And the air will be rent with the cries of distress. The soil will be soaked with blood
0: and the nation will black with crimes. But it turns out, it's almost always been this way. That quote, that was a newspaper editorial predicting the dire consequences of the election of Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence. It also turns out, that the 58 weeks we have remaining is just enough time to review the entire history of presidential elections, from the unanimous and inevitable election of George Washington in 1789 to Donald Trump's surprise electoral victory in 2016. I'm Lindsey Graham, host of the podcast, American History Tellers and American Scandal. I have a new podcast called American Elections, Wicked Game, debuting October 8th. And for the next 58 weeks, We're going to discover that presidential politics has always been played dirty. Don't miss the two-episode debut on October 8th. Subscribe now to American Elections Wicked Game on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.
1: The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to Minds of Madness To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search the Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerror .au slash G. I
0: can feel the yeah. madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run